Hello, this is Ronald Chapman, and I'm delighted to be with you today. Special thanks to Sejalola for allowing me an opportunity to share with you today. I'm the author of four books, two audio sets. You can learn more about me at ronaldchapman.com. You can find all my work, by my name also, at Amazon. And if you're interested, I've got a lot of free content at two sites, seeingtrue.com has a fair amount of work that's current and contemporary to what I do in the world these days outside of writing. And progressiverecovery.org has a lot of free content about the recovering world, a space in which I spend a fair amount of time as well. Feel free to check those out. I'm going to read today from a work of fiction, A Killer's Grace, which was released in 2016 by Terranova Books. The background on this story is that it began when I corresponded in the real world with a serial killer, a man who was put to death for his crimes a number of years ago. He and I chatted at length about his circumstances and who he was and how it came to be. And the result of that was he gave me permission to use any of his writings, any of his correspondence with me in any way I liked, to tell his story. As long as I gave him no credit and no acknowledgement, he didn't want the families of his victims to be further injured. And so I used some of his writing as a starting point for a story set in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I lived for a number of years. My protagonist, a man by the name of Pitcairn, has received a letter from a serial killer, yes, that serial killer, although I've relocated him and changed a number of the factors just to ensure that he remains anonymous. Pitcairn, Kevin Pitcairn, has received this letter, and it fuels his own psycho-spiritual path. Uh, turns out he's a man of violence as well, as you'll soon hear. At this moment, this is the inception of the book. Sprawling above a basalt escarpment that lines the valley of the Rio Grande, the West Mesa was formed when ancient volcanoes spewed a foundation of lava for silt to accumulate on over tens of millions of years. From that spare soil grew a ragged carpet of bunch grasses and snakeweed, spiked by gawky choya cactus and stunted juniper trees. Few people frequented that lonely place on the outskirts of Albuquerque, yet on this day, as on most, Kevin Pitcairn's lanky figure was striding through the early morning light. Beside him trotted a ghostly white dog, while farther away, a dun-colored one cavorted among pale mounds of Indian rice grass. The high desert was a perfect environment for Pitcairn. Countless trails for his agitated and seemingly inexhaustible energy, a perfect place to exercise his dogs. The open space was like a second home. The emptiness of the mesa absorbed him. Pitcairn stared into the distance. Each night, he woke long before sunup to a recurring nightmare or in dread anticipation of it. Since 1988, more than 15 years had passed, and he could count the number of uninterrupted nights on the fingers of two hands. But on this summer's morning, thoughts of the letter he received the previous day roused him from sleep before the nightmare had a chance. Bearing the marks and stamps of the prison bedding system, the careful script on yellow legal pages mailed in a plain manila envelope clawed at him. It was a lengthy and complicated read, a reflection of the exceedingly deliberate and disturbed mind of the writer. The first paragraph seized his attention. Dear Mr. Pitcairn, 
My name is Daniel Davidson. I am a condemned man. When most people think of death row inmates, I'm the one they think of. To them, I'm the worst of the worst, a serial killer responsible for the rape and murder of eight women in three states. I have assaulted several others and stalked and frightened many more. I have never denied what I did, and I have fully confessed to my crimes. The only issue in my case was, and still is, my mental condition. For years, I've been trying to prove that I'm suffering from a mental illness that drove me to rape and kill, and that this mental illness made me physically unable to control my actions. As you can imagine, I've met with little success and even less sympathy. So here I sit in my cell in Santa Fe, soon to be returned to death row in Texas, waiting for the judicial system to complete the tedious process that will almost certainly result in my execution. Sometimes, when I close my eyes, I can envision the hundreds of people who are likely to gather outside the prison gates on that night. I can see them waving placards, drinking, and rejoicing, and I can hear their cheers as my death is finally announced. Who is Daniel Davidson? And what could possibly motivate a clearly intelligent individual, a graduate of Villanova University, to commit such horrendous crimes? As you might expect, I've been examined by many psychiatric experts since my arrest. All of them, including the state's own expert psychiatric witness, diagnosed me as suffering from a paraphiliac mental disorder called sexual sadism. In the expert's words, it results in my compulsion to perpetrate violent sexual activity in a repetitive way. These experts also agree that my criminal conduct was the direct result of uncontrollable sexual impulses caused by my mental illness. The state's only hope of obtaining a conviction was to inflame the jury's emotions so they would ignore any evidence of psychological impairment. In my particular case, that was easy to do in Texas, and the state succeeded in obtaining convictions and multiple death sentences. This diversion to New Mexico has only delayed the inevitable. The urge to hurt women could come over me at any time and at any place. Powerful, sometimes irresistible desires would well up for no apparent reason and with no warning. Even after my arrest, while I was facing capital charges, these urges continued. I remember one day being transported back to the county jail from a county appearance just prior to my trial. I was in the back of a sheriff's van in full restraints, handcuffs, leg irons, belly chains when we passed a young woman walking along the road. I cannot begin to describe the intensity of feeling that enveloped me that day. I wanted, no, were it not for the restraints, I would have had her. The situation was both ludicrous and terrifying, and later, back in my cell, I fantasized about what would have happened. Even after I was sentenced to death, the urges persisted. One day, when someone in authority had a clear lapse in judgment, I was being escorted back to my cell by two female correctional officers. When we got to a secluded stairwell, I suddenly felt this overwhelming desire to hurt one of them. I knew I had to get away from the danger, and despite my shackles, I quickly shuffled as far from them as I could to feel some distance. I'll never forget them shouting at me. They had no clue how close I came to assaulting them. You would think that being sentenced to death and living in a maximum security prison would curb such urges, but this illness defies rationality. I eventually found some relief. Almost three years after I came to death row, I began weekly injections of an anti-androgen medication called Depo-Provera. Three years later, after some liver function trouble, 
I was switched to monthly Depo-Lupron injections, which I still receive. What these drugs did was significantly reduce my body's natural production of the male sex hormone, testosterone. For some reason, testosterone affects my mind differently than it does the average male. A few months after I started the treatment, my blood serum testosterone dropped below prepubescent levels. It's currently 20. The normal range is 260 to 1,250. As this happened, nothing less than a miracle occurred. My obsessive thoughts and fantasies began to diminish. If I had this treatment years ago, who knows how many lives it would have saved, including my own. Having those thoughts is a lot like living with an obnoxious roommate. You can't get away because they're always there. What the Depo-Lupron does for me is to move that roommate far down the hall to his own apartment. The problem is still there, but it's easier to deal with because it isn't always intruding into my everyday life. The medication has rendered the monster within impotent and banished him to the back of my mind. And while he can still mock me on occasion, he no longer controls me. One thing is surely true. There are other Daniel Davidsons out there. It's easy to point a finger at me, to call me evil and condemn me to death. But if that is all that happens, it will be a terrible waste. Tragic murders such as those I committed can be avoided in the future, but only if society stops turning its back, stops condemning, and begins to acknowledge and treat the problem. Only then will something constructive come out of events that took the lives of eight women, left their families and friends bereaved, resulted in my incarceration and probable execution, and caused untold shame and anguish to my own family. I have read one of your columns, and I think you'll understand what I am saying. You have the ability to make this case for understanding disorders such as mine. With understanding, it becomes possible to change policy. The social values in the state of New Mexico seem likely to support screening for youth offenders. That could make all the difference. Sincerely yours, Daniel Davidson. As a freelance journalist and regular columnist for the local afternoon newspaper, the Albuquerque Chronicle, Pitcairn often received unsolicited mail. He immediately recognized Davidson's name and knew about the case. Davidson had been convicted for the murder of four of his six Texas victims after protracted delays for psychiatric evaluation. Oklahoma had opted not to prosecute him for the murder of a seventh victim. But New Mexico, where Marisa Sandoval's brutal death had brought a heavily politicized public outcry from the Hispanic community, had chosen to put him on trial for the murder of the 17-year-old Santa Fe high school girl. That proceeding had become notorious for its conclusion two weeks earlier. No conviction. Unlike the Texans, these jurors had bought the psychological evidence in the mental defect defense. Perhaps not unexpectedly, considering the public rage over the crime and the jury's Anglo-majority, a series of angry protests followed, fueled by heated accusations of racism. Police had to quell a near riot. Now Davidson was to be returned to Texas to await execution. His case was unusual. Despite the efforts of anti-death penalty agitators to appeal his case in Texas on psychiatric grounds, especially in light of the New Mexican decision, Davidson had asked that his sentence be carried out as soon as possible in order to break through what would otherwise be a lengthy process. It was reported he understood he had broken society's covenants and actively sought his own death. While Pitcairn could easily write a column or two based on Davidson's letter, he had no idea what to make of the murderer's request. He decided he'd discuss it with his editor next week. 
the story would still be a big one. He could put it aside until then, he told himself, but for some reason it was impossible to shake a pervasive uneasiness. Davidson was to be transported back to Texas in a few days. Pitcairn had tossed and turned in bed last night, unable to keep the letter out of his mind. He couldn't escape the feeling there was more than just a story there. Finally, he got up, dressed, and slipped into the night. The early rising was nothing new, but the letter had provoked him in a way he couldn't explain. Nearly at his jeep, again, after several miles back and forth wandering the West Mesa's trails, he paused and knelt beside a gash in the earth. Heavy afternoon thunderstorms had pelted the area the previous day. The terrain he had just hiked was raked by nearly three inches of rain in less than an hour, bringing massive rapid runoff that dramatically reshaped the steep ground. To Pitcairn, the layering effect from the rushing waters seemed to have carved a miniature Grand Canyon. A billion grains of sand could be rearranged so quickly, he thought. Slowly the wind would heal the scarred earth, one particle at a time, and then someday another torrent would rip it apart again. Walking the West Mesa always brought a measure of clarity. Today was no different. He glanced toward the city, its lights twinkling as its residents slowly awoke. He had questions to ask before the day ended and the weekend began. A hummingbird hovered above the thick foliage as Pitcairn parked outside his house and went through the gate arch into the front yard. He watched the bird for a few moments as he breathed in the heavy fragrance of honeysuckle. The brief reverie passed. He opened the gate and stepped aside as Lincoln and Lucy rushed ahead. He and Maria Elena had bought the house on Gold Street a few years earlier. The decision came after more than two years of dating when they realized they would someday marry. It was their commitment to each other. The vine-covered adobe walls circling the house offered her a sense of security. It was not a particularly dangerous neighborhood, but the walls and the dogs discouraged intrusion. Pitcairn enjoyed the seclusion he felt in their home. Inspired by Spanish haciendas, the L-shaped house sat in a corner of the lot with virtually no back or side yard. A single ancient massive cottonwood shaded the house and most of the yard. He and Maria Elena had taken out the grass lawn, sucking up so much precious water, and laid out flagstone seating areas beneath the tree. Cinder walkways wandered amid the mulch surrounding the native plantings. They'd been told the honeysuckle vines that laced their way across the sunny front wall were planted years earlier by the original owner. Stepping onto the covered porch fronting the house, he opened the door and let the dogs rush past him again. Maria Elena had already cranked up the swamp cooler for its daily battle against the heat. A waft of moving air carried the rich odor of carne arvada. Woman of the house, Pitcairn bellowed with a mock Irish brogue, where's me breakfast? Maria Elena responded to his standard morning routine with a typically caustic response. Up yours, baby. <laughs> she often called him Sito. The irony of that nickname was not lost. Kevin Sito, Sito for short, little Kevin. But today, there was no such term of affection. As he swung into the kitchen, Lincoln and Lucy were already wolfing down kibble and meat scraps in the corner. Pitcairn appreciated how Maria Elena always sought to feed every person and creature around her. It was a way of expressing her love, and given his delight in New Mexican cooking, made for a near-perfect match. He approached her tiny frame as she stood vigorously stirring the pork and fiery chili. Eggs sizzled in a huge cast-iron skillet, and pinto beans simmered on the back burner. 
Towering over her, he carefully placed his hands on her shoulders, bent over and gently kissed the top of her head. Tickling stray hairs the color of a raven caused him to recoil and furiously rub his nose. Maria Elena turned and gazed up at him, her almost black eyes shining brightly. Her face reminded Pitcairn of a native priestess, high cheekbones, tapered chin, full lips. She defended her heritage as blue-blooded Spanish, like so many native New Mexicans, but her looks were unequivocally, unequivocally Toltec. Maria Elena Maldonado had grown up near Old Town in Albuquerque, only a short distance from where she lived now. Her parents could trace back their heritage through many generations in New Mexico, but she was estranged now from the entire clan, as well as from the Catholic roots of her childhood. You were up even earlier than usual, she whispered. The nightmare again? Pitcairn shook his head. No, it was that letter. My instincts tell me to check it out. It could be a great story, but I don't really know where Davidson might go with it, and for reasons I don't understand, I'm kind of reluctant. Marie, Maria Elena's eyes blazed in response. Why do you care about that bastard at all? He deserves what he's going to get. She shook in a full-body spasm, mimicking the way she expected he would die. Her glare locked on Pitcairn's eyes before she spun to flip the eggs and stir the carne animada. Her frequent bouts of steeliness always threw him off balance. He had learned to use the instant of quiet that followed to think before he proceeded and to swallow his tendency to react. It was simply a part of her capricious emotions. Look at it this way, he said. If what Davidson writes is true, he's not an evil man, and that's a story that needs to be told. The cords at the side of her neck nodded as she spoke. As he spoke, she whipped her head back over her shoulder. Listen, she snarled. Any man who does what he did to that girl in Santa Fe deserves to be fried. Pitcairn draped his arms around her as she leaned away, whispering into her hair. I may not always understand you, but you're gorgeous when you're pissed. Her body sagged as a sigh escaped. Pitcairn, if you defend Davidson, you're as much a bastard as he is now go before I burn your eggs. The tone in her voice told him the fight was over. Like a fast-forming summer storm, Maria Elena's emotions could rise swiftly only to pass without harm. He slouched into a chair and grinned as she deftly placed three eggs on the blue enameled tin plate and ladled beans beside them. Then she smothered the plate with steaming carne alabada before yanking open the oven and gingerly folding two tortillas along the edge of his plate. What are you grinning about, Sito? she asked with an impish look as he saw his, she saw his broad smile. Pitcairn laughed merrily. What more could a bastard want? A beautiful, tenacious woman, a platter of world-class New Mexican food? It doesn't get any better than that. She leaned over and kissed his forehead before setting his breakfast on the table, then got her own meal from the stove. The kitchen was quiet. The dogs studied him from the corner as they licked their muzzles in hopeful anticipation. Maria Elena seated herself as Pitcairn lifted the first bite to his mouth. Are you really going to do something with that letter, she asked tentatively. I gotta check it out. Assuming his thinking holds up, it has big implications. With all the debate about death penalties and stiffer sentences for felons, he pointed with his fork. It's controversial, too. Chewing thoughtfully as he paused, he shook his head. Emmy, if it turns out to be bullshit, or Davidson is as rotten as you think, I'll drop it. Until then, I need to see it through. Pitcairn watched as Maria Elena chewed, digesting both food and thoughts. He knew she would change the subject. The grin crept back to his lips as long moments passed. 
I'm meeting Darlene for dinner tonight, she said. We're meeting two women at the Church Street Cafe. A smirk came to Pitcairn's face. Our ladies of perpetual revenge do Old Town? Maria Elena rolled her eyes. How can such a nice guy be such a jerk? Silence filled the space before she continued. I know that is one of those jokes about women in recovery in Al-Anon, that we're out to punish alcoholics like you, but I really don't appreciate it, especially because Darlene has been such a great sponsor. I could never have healed without her help, so I hardly think what she's doing qualifies as revenge somehow directed at you. You're right, Emmy, he said with his playful variation on her initials, but you have to admit, our ladies of perpetual revenge has a great ring to it. She stared at him in mock disgust. It's a good thing I have a job. If I were cooped up with you too long, I'd have to kill myself. Touché, he quickly added. I hope you remembered I'm speaking at the Saturday Night Live AA group tomorrow. I'd like you to be there, even though you've heard my drinking story way too many times. After the crap you put me through, Pitcairn, I should avoid you like an obnoxious teenager, she said. But I'll be there. It's important to you. It's okay if Darlene comes with me, isn't it? Absolutely. Just tell her to check her instruments of torture at the door, he said with a wink. Maria Elena shook her head again, then glanced at the clock on the kitchen wall and jumped up with a gasp. You need to take care of the dishes. I've got a 7.30 meeting I can't miss. Done. I'll handle it. I'm a very competent guy. She leaned down to kiss him. He grabbed her right breast. She laughed and dashed out the door. With dishes done and dogs snoring on the futon in the corner of his home office, Pitcairn pulled out his file of names and contacts. He, di- he dialed Kate Delmonico, a talented brain researcher who had become a reliable confidant when he needed a sounding board. She'd been the one who suggested when he stopped drinking that he experiment with using only his last name as his identity. Her research indicated that how people speak of themselves can reflect their perceived reality. If Kevin was a drunk, then Pitcairn could be sober. Though he couldn't call himself proof, though he couldn't call himself proof the hypothesis was right, somehow the name had taken hold with everyone who knew him. Kate, this is Pitcairn. How's your life? She giggled uncontrollably. He marveled that such a bright woman could be so socially awkward, but in a long ago interview about her first book on addictive brain chemistry, they had laughed together about what social inepts they were. The conversation had established a rapport that endured. Delmonico was brilliant and creative especially when existing knowledge fell short. Pitcairn, she bubbled. So nice to hear your voice. Ditto, he replied. Have you got a few minutes? For you, always. Great. Now look, this is not really up your alley, but... But you figured you'd give it a shot anyway. Kate, even on a slow day, you're sharper than all the shrinks in town. Laughter, punctuated by snorts, burst over the phone line. You are dangerously smooth. Maria Elena says I'm authentico, genuine, but that's a conversation for another day. I've got a hot project that involves brain chemistry. You in? What's the story? Pitcairn described the letter, then read the paragraphs on the testosterone effect Daniel Davidson had described. What's your take, he asked. I suppose you want my professional opinion as opposed to commentary? (laughs) Pitcairn chuckled. Come on, Kate. The whole truth and nothing but the truth. Well, she began with uncharacteristic hesitation. It's consistent with my findings, but the implications trouble me. As a scientist, I can defend that, but it's still disturbing. He heard her take a deep breath. So it looks like it could hold up pretty well, he asked, which would be a hell of a story, right? 
Sure, every year there's more evidence that many behaviors are genetic and biological in nature, and every time one of those items hits the news, it provokes a backlash from people whose sensibilities are offended. Listen, Kate, no way do I want to justify this guy's crimes. The, but the more I think about it, the more it seems that we're incarcerating and executing people who are sick simply because we don't want to admit they're not the convenient evil stereotype. That's newsworthy, no matter how heinous the behavior. After a long silence, she replied, How do you get involved in these strange stories, anyway? I'm karmically challenged, he laughed, though of course I don't believe in that nonsense. Well, it's an interesting situation, she replied, and that piques my interest. How can I help? I'll let you know, he paused a moment. There's one thing I thought of. Do you have any suggestions on shortcuts to find out if a therapist has been assigned to treat Davidson in Santa Fe? Pitcairn, I may be bright, she said with uncharacteristic charm, but you're on your own in those waters. There are probably no shortcuts through the penal system. I figured as much, but thanks anyway. I'll be in touch. See you, Pitcairn. His interest had been increased by Delmonico's support. He gazed out the window as he thought about what to do next, then opened his contact file again, searching methodically through the bureaucracy. And then he started calling. A short while later, he'd made little progress. It was Friday. The best he could do was talk to clerks who offered little hope or direction and then leave messages. Lincoln and Lucy emerged from their slumbers with a great deal of yawning and stretching. Pitcairn took a break to limber his legs, walking around the yard as thoughts of Daniel Davidson filled his mind. With no clear direction until he talked to his editor at the Chronicle, he shrugged off further thoughts and drove away in his jeep to run errands. The story would have to wait. That's a reading from A Killer's Grace. The story is propelled forward based on that as Pitcairn pursues an understanding and reporting on this serial killer's story. It's also a chance for him to reconcile to his own past, which includes a fair amount of violence. Again, my name is Ronald Chapman. You can find me at www.ronaldchapman.com. You can also find all of my books under Ronald Chapman at Amazon.com. If you'd like to see more of my free content, a lot of writing, a lot of vlogs, video content, etc., seentrue.com has that. And if you're curious about things having to do with the recovering world, the 12-step recovering world, check it out at progressiverecovery.org. I'd like to thank you for listening, and again, thank Sejalola for allowing me time on her show. Have a lovely day. Look forward to hearing from you. Bye-bye.